Spring of Life Fellowship and the vision of changing the world invites you to listen to a message of restoration and strengthening for your life. Let's listen to our guest. Let's welcome Sir Chuck Brewster. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Wow. Wow. Praise God. You be seated. Good morning. Am I too loud or can you hear me okay? They're all leaving. It's the next generation. Praise God. I, uh, I'm honored to be here. Pastor found that video. I've never seen that video. <laughs> Let me correct the record just a little bit. You know, the, uh, I served five presidents. And it was 23 years. But who's counting? <laughs> As I told the men last night, we were sitting and having dinner. You know, I, you never really become a former Secret Service agent. You're retired, but you're always a Secret Service agent. I always uh, assess the situation around me and I'm always aware of my surroundings and what's going on. It's just a nature a habit of, I've been trained into in my career. Uh, you know, but God has a sense of humor. He brought me into ministry, amen? <laughs> you know, I used to be standing down here, you know, and the president would speak up here, and I'd be standing here, you know, and positioning myself and watching you. And if you came forward trying to get up here, I would hurt you. You know, now I'm a minister, and I really want to get up. I'm up here now. God has a sense of humor, right? And I want you to come forward. <laughs> you know, sometimes I get confused. <laughs> so it, when, I, when I minister, I'm a little bit different type of minister. Uh, I just tell it like it is. And, and I just want to share with you this morning a little bit why God called a secret service agent into full-time ministry. I mean, you think about it. Uh, I, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. I grew up Episcopalian, okay? I, had, I was an acolyte. I was serving wine, communion, you know, and wafers and everything in the Episcopal church. I was, but I didn't know Jesus. If you'd asked me if I was a Christian, yeah, I'd say, yeah, I'm Episcopalian. How many of us in church today identify with the religion that we're with instead of the Christ that we serve. And so it was uh, after I was a police officer in Pensacola and Birmingham and I met my wife and after I finished college, I met my wife, we got married. She was a good Baptist and she got saved every Sunday, amen? And uh, <laughs> not that good a Baptist. Anyway, the, uh, you know, we both were uh, going to the Episcopal Church, but her niece, our niece, uh, invited us to go hear a Birmingham Americans quarterback speak. And I thought, that's kind of unique because of the expansion team for the NFL. And Denny Duran was the uh, quarterback. And, and I went to hear him and I sat way in the back back there. Y'all back there, you know what I mean? The center's row. And uh, I was back there and, and, and I was sitting on my hand because I know how Pentecostals are. They get excited when they raise their hands and things happen. And I didn't want things to happen. I'm very conservative Law enforcement, Secret Service, you know, I don't get wild and crazy. 
But all of a sudden, he started throwing spiritual footballs. And he threw another spiritual football. Before long, guys, you know how men are. We catch them. Notice the hands. They're raised in a Pentecostal church. I got so saved that night. I got so saved. I mean, I got like thrown under the bus saved. My wife says, uh, you know, we need to be baptized. I said, well, I've been sprinkled. So I said, okay. Because guys, don't we listen to our wives? And so I got baptized, you know, fully immersed. Down the old man, came up the new man. Now they put down an old man. Old man comes up. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> talking about age now, not sin, all right? But, the, uh, but I got baptized. Then my wife came to me, and the guys, this is when you know that you know that you know. She said, honey, we need to go to our prayer meeting. I said, okay. See, the inside of me was still Episcopalian. What are we going to pray about? Well, we're going to pray about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I'm thinking, and you know, I'm supposed to be the priest of my home and the leader of my home, and, you know, I'm still learning all this. And I said, uh, okay. In my mind, I'm thinking, I already got baptized because I didn't understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I said, where is it going to be? She says, it's going to be at Mama Luker's house. I said, Mama Luker, who is Mama Luker? She said, you know the woman that always prays for people down at the altar? She's always anointing them with oil for healing. I said, you mean that 94-year-old woman? Because she was literally 94 years old. You, you probably have a Mama Luker here, too. But she had her hair pulled so f tight back into a bun, you know. She had no wrinkles. Anyway. <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, I said, we'll go, you know, being the leader of my home. We went to that house, walked through the threshold of that door. I looked around the living room. There was 12 women and me. Can I tell you, men, that's when I realized right there, we needed really, truly powerful ministries to men. More men need to step through that threshold and take leadership roles in the church. Amen. And, and so I got, I got filled with the Holy Ghost. I speak with tongues. I was this, this conservative secret service agent was all of a sudden demonstrating in a different manner. But still, I am here. God called a secret service agent to full-time ministry. I served five different presidents from President Ford through President Clinton. I, I moved eight times in my career Every time I turn around, just about I was packing up the Griswolds. You know who I'm talking about? The two kids and the dog in the station wagon moving across country. I'll talk about all that in a, in a few minutes. I wanted to give you an example today, you know, in my message. And my message is entitled this morning, Living in the Line of Fire. Living in the Line of Fire. You know, as Christians, you are in the line of fire, especially in today's world. And I do hope that you come out tonight and, and be a part of the uh, 6 p.m. Uh, uh, time. I can give you a little awareness thing. This is an add-on thing, you know. I'm not really prepared to do the full boat, the full Monty, as we say, but it'll be good. You'll enjoy it. But uh, I know that uh, in my career in the Secret Service, I was uh, taught to do certain things, and I'm hopefully impart some of that tonight. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to your, in your Bibles to Romans 12, 
verses 1 and 2. I want to start there, and I want to pray for this message. While you're turning, I want to say that I have a book table. Who doesn't have a book table when they come? I'm in. And uh, it's a book table. There's uh, two books out there. They're called, one is called Dead Men Rising, and the other is called The Champion's Playbook. The Champion's Playbook is more of a booklet, but it tells you why we need ministries to men. It tells you why there needs to be an emphasis on families, why that and a plan on how you can get that accomplished in this booklet. So it has some good facts. Now, the Dead Men Rising book is one that I, I wrote that basically covers the men's movement in America for the last 40 years. And my time in the Secret Service, anecdotal, anecdotal stories about why, what characters of moral uh, fitness you need to have and using examples from my White House days. So the book is going to be out there along with a coin. Several people have asked me about this coin. And this coin is a full armor of God coin. It is a, a coin that basically I call a prayer challenge coin. And I ask people to really, you know, uh, take it, guys, put it on your dresser at night, you know, when you're emptying all your pockets and your wife takes all your money. And, but you'll leave the coin. And next morning when you get up with the clean clothes and everything, you put it in your pocket. As you're putting it in your pocket, you pray on the full armor of God for you and your family because you're the priest of your home. And as you carry it in your pocket, it's a reminder for you to pray for those you're with. And you might even challenge someone else to take that full armor of God coin challenge and you give that coin to them. Then you come to me and get another. Amen? But those will be available out there. All three of these are available for $20 out there or they're $10 each. Otherwise, $20 either way, isn't it? I figured it out a long time ago in men's ministries. When I go to men's conferences and everything, men only have $20. That's all they give them. You know, they give them $20, go to the conference, all right? You can give it an offering, you can buy something, whatever you want to do, you know? And then they came up with this thing called a debit card. So I got a square. <laughs> Amen? Amen. All right, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I got to hurry. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any lo uh, longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father, right now, Lord, transform our minds. Help us understand the message that is being presented this morning to change us into world changers. In Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, blessed by your music this morning and even in your comments, you were talking about being transformed. And I went, she's reading my message, you know, and uh, so it really is. You know, in that, if you listen to that scripture, it says to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. It says to be holy and pleasing. Well, that means you got to be free of sin. You know, you got, if your body is going to be a living sacrifice, in the Bible, they didn't sacrifice dirty animals, unclean animals. They sacrifice clean and holy things so we got to make ourselves clean and holy but we also need to do it as a spiritual act of worship 
Now, I'm not saying, guys, that you need to throw yourself in front of the pastor and take a bullet meant for him. That's when you go, oh, that's for you, and I'll step up and preach. No, but that's not what I'm saying. You need to live your lives as a living sacrifice. You need to, not to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you live by the patterns of this world, then let me tell you what you're getting. Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue, all the different think tanks, all the different talking heads telling you what you are and defining you instead of letting the Word of God define who you are. So I'm going to teach you today how to do what the Word just told you to do. How to transform yourself by renewing your mind. My background is 28 years or 30 years in law enforcement, 23 of which were the Secret Service. I've been in ministry now 19 years since I was called to ministry full-time while I was, I was a special agent in charge of the Seattle Division based in Seattle, Washington, overseeing five states in western Canada. Prior to that, I'd been in the Chicago Division, oversaw all the criminal operations for the Midwest. And prior to that, I was in Washington, D.C., and, and was part of the uh, president's inspection team uh, for the director, and, and, and I also coordinated uh, the 1992 convention and, 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 uh, and, uh, in, uh, in New York City at Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, I had been in uh, Los Angeles, California as an agent, coordinated the 1984 Olympics, you know, I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, as the agent in charge of that office, and, and I'd, I'd been all around. I'd, I'd been, you know, Birmingham is where I started, but uh, shortly thereafter is the White House, then out to L.A., then, you know, back to Las Vegas, then back to White House again, and, and with the Vice President George Bush becoming President George Bush. You know, I had served Presidents uh, Carter, Reagan, you know, and uh, Bush, uh, full-time, and by the time Clinton became president, I was, you know, a supervisor in rank and like the top 40 leaders in the overall Secret Service uh, paradigm. I ended up my career in Seattle in an upper room, in an upper room where God said to me, lay it down and follow me. An upper room, much like in the Bible where you're speaking in tongues, you're praying, but I was fasting. And let me tell you something, guys. When you fast and pray, things happen. You raise your hands. And all of a sudden, I'm being called, lay it down and follow me. Then I realized that God had been calling me early on in my life. It was almost like my mind was opened up to what was going on. This was not in my prepared remarks, but it's for somebody. Sometimes you've got to let your mind be opened up by God so he can remind you of how many times he's been trying to reach you. And I knew right then that night, and I'll go over that another time, another message and everything, but I knew that time, that night, that I was called to full-time ministry, enough so that my wife and I agreed that we would seek out ministry and and uh, retire and move into it. And I didn't realize it, uh, but at the time, my name was being considered for the national leader of men's ministries for the Assemblies of God, 12,000 churches across the United States. And so within nine months, that's where I 
started my ministry position. And realizing that my most important mission in life was to minister, minister to men and their families, but ministering to the families through the man. You see, because it is the man that shapes the character of a lot of families. Everybody thinks it's usually the woman. No, she's the stalwart. She's the prayer warrior. She's the comforter. She's the one that comes around you and encourages you. But it's the man's attitude toward God that helps bring a family in God's presence. Because that's the way God designed it. Now, ladies can bring men into God's presence as well. I've seen many do it. But what was unique was that I was trying to reach America's families one man at a time. And I did that for seven years, and then I moved to Pensacola, Florida, and started my own ministry called Champions of Honor because I felt like I needed to minister outside the walls of one denomination or fellowship. And I've been doing that ever since. 28 years in law enforcement, now 19 years in ministry. Secret Service agents are bodyguards for president, vice president, other dignitaries around the world. You know that. Most people know that. How many do not know that? Every time I go to get introduced by a church, they introduce me as a CIA agent. <laughs> Even guys that knew me, and, and I told him ahead of time, I'm not CIA, introduced me as a CIA agent. And uh, I, I was at pastor's house yesterday, and somebody said, you're CIA? I said, No. Don't try to get me killed, will you? you know? I got it one time and I said, you know, I might have been in the CIA. The Secret Service is pretty secret. I don't know. But we offer our lives constantly to the service of our nation. Offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Willing to die for a dignitary we didn't know, we might not like. Think about that. It's truly amazing the guy would call a Secret Service agent, but he needed to call a Secret Service agent to train men to be able to die for dignitaries, then train men to die for God, die to themselves, get out from, all, un, out from the world's understanding of what men are supposed to be, territorial, protectors, yes, but also allowing God to mold them into the men that God created you to be. You see, the key, the key to being able to die for someone you don't know is training beyond your will for living. Coach McCartney, you know Bill McCartney with Promise Keepers? He got men in a male-friendly environment, a stadium, a football stadium, not soccer, football stadium. <laughs> And, and, and he got them there raising holy hands, bumping big bellies, and some got bigger ones than others, you know, but, but he got them there cheering Jesus and not their team. But God needed a Secret Service agent about the same time frame, and Bill McCartney and I are friends, and, and it got molded me. Cole was my friend. He molded me, different people. God put in my pathway to mold me, to train me to be before you today Amen. with a different mission. Train men to die for God, dying to their own desires, living their lives large, 
transforming themselves from ordinary to extraordinary. To do this, you need to disengage your mind. You see, because what goes inside of you comes out during stress. Garbage in, garbage out. Gospel in, gospel out. So you have to really disengage the brain. Training beyond your will for living is paying a price. It is constant and ongoing. It's not something you just pick up on Sunday mornings, guys. It's not something you just do, uh, you know, at a Bible study. It's constant. It's ongoing. It's something you prepare for constantly because you never know when it's coming. It's the other 51 weeks, I call it, because in men's ministries, there's always one week a year you have a men's retreat. The other 51 weeks, you're in church, you know, you're in business, you're doing whatever. But you have to train because you react exactly as you're trained. And the only way that I could really illustrate this perfectly is to give you a video. Joan London, an ABC reporter, she did a uh, behind closed doors at the White House to look at the Secret Service. And I want to show you a clip to help you visualize kind of the training that we go through so I can finish my message on time. Amen. If you could play the training. Secret Service agents are trained unlike any other law enforcement agency in the world. When the unthinkable occurs, the agents are trained to cover and evacuate. To learn to react instinctively to every conceivable situation, they are put through a series of real-life training scenarios called AOPs, Attack on a Principle. For the first time, the Secret Service has allowed a journalist to participate in an AOP. They let us videotape two different exercises. The first one involved a very familiar situation. It is called working the rope line, something the president does all the time. In this scenario, I would be the one shaking hands with the crowd. Hi, ma'am. Nice to meet you. We go over a hundred different scenarios. We put our agents through training where nothing happens at all. That's part of the training. We want them to realize that so you get into a lot of situations. You may be geared up and you may be ready for a confrontation, but nothing happens. What these agents don't know is that somewhere in the crowd is a man with a gun. At the first sign of a weapon, agents are trained to sound off as loud as they can. Hi, nice to meet you. I was immediately covered by a wall of human bodies thrown into the limousine and evacuated. Simultaneously, three other things were happening. One of the agents simulated taking a bullet. Two other agents immediately started emergency medical care. Three more agents disarmed and subdued the gunman. I saw nothing. You all right? Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay, that's, that's okay. That was real. The AOPs can be very graphic. We'd like them to experience that inside the confines of a controlled environment here before they would actually see something like that on the streets. Hopefully they never see that out in the street, but we want to be prepared for the worst. The second AOP was based on a series of actual world events. To simulate the attack, special effects were used. It started with a truck bomb. Then part two of the attack, a terrorist bomber. And a rocket attack, 
My detail immediately started evasive maneuvers as the street erupted in flames. During the exercise, the noise was deafening. These explosions give us the feel, the blast, the heat. We want to train the way it'll be if an event actually goes down. Director Maletti in that comment said, we want to train the way it will be if an actual event went down. We don't train in slow motion. We don't train halfway. We don't walk through things. We do in actual time, hearing actual explosions, hearing actual gunshots. We feel the heat of the fire at the time. We, we train the way it will be when it comes down. The video shows the intensity of the training it takes to move from ordinary to extraordinary, just like that. You have to react according to how you're trained, not how you think about it. If you have to think about it, you've already wasted precious time. You have to act as a team, not as a lone ranger. A lone ranger will die as a lone stranger. You have to react according to your training, and you need to get large when everybody else is getting small. I've done a pretty good job of getting large, amen? <laughs> but in 1963, Clint Hill was one of those such agents that went from ordinary to extraordinary. Clint Hill wrote a book called Jackie and Me. It's an excellent read if you ever want to read some history. But uh, Clint Hill was a young agent on the president's detail assigned to Jackie Kennedy on the day that President Kennedy was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. Clint Hill, you'll see in a video I'm going to show you in a second, ran forward as the first shot rang out at Daly Plaza. He jumped on the running board. There's a foot plate about, looks like about the size of a license plate. <coughs> he jumped on that while grabbing hold of a handhold on the back of the limo and pushing Jackie Kennedy back into the limousine. She is, you'll see, reaching for something on the back trunk of the car coming out of the back seat. It was part of her husband's head. She was in a nylons and a dress, and she, the cars are well waxed, well taken care of. Trust me on that. And, 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 and she would have slid right off that trunk onto the oncoming follow-up car behind had Clint Hill not pushed her back safely into that seat. Play the video for Kennedy now. It's kind of graphic. Shortly after we got into that turn and started on that street, I heard a sound. I turned to see what was happening. I knew something was wrong. I saw President Kennedy grab at his throat. Before I could get to the presidential limousine, another shot had been fired and hit President Kennedy in the head. About that time, I reached the back of the limousine and tried to get on. I had to run three or four more steps before I could get up. By that time, 
Mrs. Kennedy had come out onto the trunk and was seeing, it appeared to me to be searching for something or trying to retrieve something. You don't think about your wife or your children or your own life. Your, your whole focus is to save the president. first gentleman was Clint Hill in the later years. Uh, we interviewed him, my son and I, and took the clips. And the other gentleman was Jerry Parr. Jerry Parr was the agent in charge of President Reagan's detail that shoved President Reagan into the limousine and saved his life that day in 1981. Clint Hill, though, he was on the running boards in Dallas on the follow-up car, and he ran forward. Those cars started speeding faster and faster. He had to really hustle to get on that back plate, and then he responded beyond himself, saving Jackie Kennedy's life. He acted as a hero, but he was just doing his job, a direct result of his training. In 1972, Dick Zarvels responded beyond himself and took a bullet meant for George Wallace while a campaign stop in Landover, Maryland. George Wallace was a presidential candidate at the time that we were protecting. Nick Zarvels didn't know George Wallace, but he got in the line of fire. He got and took a bullet to his neck. It didn't kill him, but, but it, it left him with a raspy voice. George Wallace got shot and was put into a wheelchair. You know the rest of that story. Nick was considered a hero, but he was just an ordinary man that did an extraordinary thing. In 1976, Larry Boondorf responded beyond himself when Squeaky Fromm, one of Charles Manson's disciples, uh, met him in a, parking in a park in Sacramento, California. She was standing in the park with a gun underneath a red cloak and with a hood, like little red riding hood, with a swastika engraved on her forehead. President Ford had been in a meeting on one side of town in Sacramento, and decided to go to a meeting on the other side to walk across the park because it was such a beautiful day. As he did, Larry Bundorf was the point agent. He was out in front. He saw her come out with a gun. He grabbed the gun. The hammer of the gun fell on the fleshy part of his hand, preventing it from firing. He wrestled her to the ground as they swept the president to the limousine and took him to the airport and got him out of there. Larry Bundorf was considered a hero, but he was just an ordinary guy doing an extraordinary job because of his training. Not 30 days later, in San Francisco, California, Bob Amon was on the, the rope line across the street from the St. Francis Hotel as the president descended the steps down to the waiting limousine with the door open, the armored car. Uh, Bob, Bob uh, saw all of a sudden a gun come out and Sarah Jane Moore fired two shots before he could grab that gun, surrender, get her down and, and take her into custody. At the same time, the president shoved in the limousine again. You know, he's taken to the airport. The guys, I'm at the airport with Air Force One and I'm waiting and I see the limousine coming. I hear it on the radio. I know what happened, you know, and I see them, all the guns are out, the long guns and everything, and guys on the running board, and we get out of Dodge. Now, it's kind of odd. Two women tried to kill Gerald Ford within 30 days. Not that we profile people, 
But, I mean, you got to take note that women are killers. Amen? <laughs> or try to be. And, 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 and the Israelis knew that a long time ago. But, it, but it, when I can tell you this, we do profile behavior patterns that lead to violence. There's a difference. Bob Amon was also considered a hero, but he was just an ordinary guy who did an extraordinary thing. And then finally, in March 1981, President Reagan was at the Washington Hilton for a routine in-town stop. Normally, it'd just be another event. That day, that was my shift. Went into the White House that morning, got my assignment. I was told to go babysit Walter Mondale, a former vice president that still had protection, and we were sending agents from the president's detail and the vice president's detail to make up shifts to carry him out through until we can get him out of town. And I liked it because that meant I sat in his basement watching TV, the news, and whatever. We pushed one. I mean, who's going to hurt Walter Mondale? Come on. You know, and especially a former vice president. But, but at that day, I, got, I parked my car. I got my assignment. I went with two other agents over to his house in, uh, in Georgetown, and, and, and we, uh, we were uh, relaxed. About 1 o'clock, we're heading back to the White House to get our car. We got pushed. We got our new relief. And all of a sudden, we hear on the radio, shots fired, rawhide down. Play that one. It's President Reagan coming out. That's for Jerry Parr, the last guy behind him in the trench coat. Tim McCarthy laying on the cement there. Bob Wonko handling that Uzi. Harry Littlejohn with his sidearm. It'll go right into another. I want to compare real life versus training. And you'll see in slow motion. Again, we don't train in slow motion. This is for your benefit. But you see the similarities between Joan London, our training, and the shooting of Ronald Reagan. And even though the training with Joan London was before Ronald Reagan. on the left, Tim McCarthy, Jerry Parr, boom, same with her thrown in the limo. We also uh, subdued John Hinckley that day. I say we because that was my shift there, but the grace of God go I. You know, on that day, our training paid off. We saved the president's life. You know, it, we trained for that scenario over and over and over again. Let me just say this. It hurts sometimes. The training you go through, you're injured. You know, you think about it. Those cars, those armored cars are like 12,000 pounds. The doors are thick. They're, they weigh as much as an aircraft uh, door. You know, and, and they, they have... There's certain things about them you have to know, and, and, and we practice, you know, throwing them in the back of that limousine through that opening, amen? And sometimes you miss. <laughs> and we each take turn being president. 
Nobody ever wanted to be the president, amen? Because <laughs> your life is in those guys' hands. But all the new presidents, even Trump, when he was elected, is taken out to our facility at Beltsville and we go through a scenario, a scenario similar to these so that his staff can see they are just as vulnerable. They are in the line of fire. So he can expect what's going to happen. It's all kind of anecdotal stories. I don't have time. I have to go to the tonight's service. Amen. Uh, but, the, uh, but that day, on that day, the hour of training paid off as the agents saved President Reagan's life. Now, let me just recap it. What happened? As you saw them come out, they came out a little bit early. Four people were shot that day. As the president came out, he's waving to the crowd. John Hinckley had embedded himself behind the press pool on the left. He had a handgun, a 32, It had five or six rounds in it. And as the president started walking toward the car, the car was a Lincoln. The doors opened the wrong way, you know, the backward way. And so Tim McCarthy got out. He was standing there. You saw him. And he turned around. He's facing the crowd on the outside. Immediately when the first shot was fired, Tim McCarthy got large. He didn't shrink down. He didn't try to hide behind the door. He got large. He took a bullet into his stomach. Now, let me say this. Tim McCarthy played football at the University of Illinois. He was a workout fanatic. Amen? You know those kind? I don't. Anyway, <laughs> he, he, he would do sit-ups all the time. He had abs. You know, he had a six-pack. I got a keg. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, 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 when he crunched, when he went for his weapon and got large and was going for his weapon to return the fire, he caught that bullet, his muscles clamped down on the bullet, preventing it from hitting his organs. True miracle. Good Catholic Democrat from Chicago. You think about it. Here's Tim McCarthy, you know, he grew up in Chicago, Irish guy, you know. I mean, come on, Chicago votes, they vote all the time, you know, even their dead people. But anyway... But Tim McCarthy, he had a chance right there. He, if he'd have thought about what he was doing, he could have said, whoa, that's for you. Because <laughs> you think about it, Ronald Reagan, he was an actor. There was a lot of similarity there. Anyway, he is also, you know, governor of California. But, you know, that's kind of like Jerry Brown. Give me a break. It's the land of, you know, crazy people out there. But... You know, and you think about it, the vice president at the time was George Herbert Walker Bush. He was the director of the CIA. He was ambassador to China. He was been in government service. He had been a good diplomat, you know. And, and, and if you think about it, that day, President Bush would have been president eight years earlier. But for Tim McCarthy taking a bullet, meant for the guy right behind him. At that time... <sighs> Officer Delahaney was returning from a coffee break to get a donut. Amen. Did y'all know that yesterday was National Donut Day or day before? <laughs> I didn't know that. I found that out last night. But uh, Delahaney got back. He was walking across the line of fire, you know, and getting back to his position because the president left early. And, and when he did that, he took a bullet to his throat. And, and another guy, Jim Brady, the press secretary, took a bullet to his head. Jim Brady went down, the head uh, was leaking uh, brain fluid, there was an open wound into his brain. Jim Berry, one of our agents, grabbed a 
his handkerchief out of his pocket, and it had been raining that morning, and there was mud puddles on the, uh, on the cement, so he wet his handkerchief, and he put it right on the wound. Had he put a dry handkerchief on the wound, it would have sucked all the cerebral fluid out of his brain. He would have died right there. But Jim Brady was saved by Jim Barry that day by putting that wet, dirty, muddy handkerchief on his head. At the same time, if you notice, Ronald, uh, Ronald Reagan was followed by the guy in the trench coat, Jerry Parr. Jerry Parr just died last month. And everything, we all had a, cel a celebration of life service for him. He was the only guy that when he retired from the Secret Service, he went into ministry too, ministering to the homeless in Washington, D.C. And, and so he and I, we joked about it at conventions, the only two that really got saved, saved. You know what I mean? <laughs> but he grabbed the president by the hand, and the other guy was Ray Shaddy. He, they both grabbed him by the seat of the pants, you know, and by the shoulder of his coat and, and just threw him like a sack of potatoes into that car. Now, you can see the hump, you know. Now, he's looking at this. Ronald Reagan went flying through the air like Superman. But that door that opened the wrong way had a bullet that ricocheted down the line and came through the crack and hit him underneath his armpit. It hit a rib and ricocheted down through his lung and landed one inch from his heart. But they threw him like a sack of potatoes. It was the biggest wedgie he'd ever had. Can I say that in church? Okay. <laughs> but it was, I mean, and, and, he, and Jerry Parr landed right on top of him, which is how we train. And he knows it. But he got up and Jerry Parr is saying, Mr. President, are you okay? He says, well, I think you might have broke my rib. He's blaming the agent that just saved his life from a shooting. But because he had it, felt like a broken rib because he, didn't know he was shot. Jerry started checking him. He didn't see anything. But then when he spoke, he noticed pink, frothing blood in his mouth. And because we're trained in 10-minute medicine, tra trauma medicine, how to save a man's life or a woman's life in the first 10 minutes of trauma, uh, you know, he realized that their blood was oxidizing in the lung. He had internal injuries. So immediately turned to the driver of the agent that signed that day was Drew Unruh. And said GW. That's all he had to say. George Washington Hospital initials, GW. And the limo, instead of going back to the White House 10 blocks where Dr. Lukash would see to the president, they went to George Washington Hospital. We, on the same time, heard shots fired, rawhide down. We immediately, we were about a block from the Washington Hilton when it happened. We just turned to the right and went over to GW Hospital. We arrived same time as the president. I went to the intensive care unit. And uh, cleared that out for the president and his family and Tim McCarthy. Those two shooting victims came to that hospital. The other two shooting victims, Brady and Delahaney, went to another hospital. You can't overload trauma. The president uh, arrived. Uh, another agent in the car with me went to the scrub up for the surgical unit. Another to the recovery room. You know, we had to just, you act. You know what to do because you're trained what to do. Jerry Parr was in the car with the back seat with the president, and the president said, I want to walk in on my own strength because I don't want the world to see what they saw in Dallas with the president being loaded onto a gurney because they always had a death watch at GW, knowing that was our primary hospital from the news media. And back then, they were more observant to not show stuff.
though. <laughs> and the, so he says, okay, sir, we'll be right with you. And as they walked through the threshold of the emergency room door, they had to armpit him and put him on a gurney to get him all the way in because he collapsed. His lung was filling up with blood. He was having a hard time breathing. He was going into shock, and they laid him down. And there's nothing more humiliating than being the leader of the free world, being stripped naked in front of everybody in the emergency room. Right then, they stripped him. They got the doctor there, came around by his head, realizing, trying to comfort him. He said, don't worry, Mr. President, you're in good hands. This Jewish doctor from New York City, been a Democrat all of his life. The president looked up at him. He said, well... I hope you're all good Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> that doctor had the wherewithal to say, and talked about it later, today all America is Republican. Amen. Because when tragedy falls on our nation, we don't have a political party, we have a mission. The agents acted in perfect formation. The men started moving from ordinary agents to extraordinary heroes, champions. Jerry Parr and Ray Shattuck got him to the hospital, got him to the emergency room. They got him in the 30 minutes later. They took the bullet out of his lung. They patched him up. Within six weeks, he was back at the White House in better shape than when he went in. And we got him on a treadmill. We got him in our physical fitness program. And trust me, I was better physically fit in Secret Service than I am in ministry. All these burnt pancakes and everything I have to eat. But anyway, the, uh, uh, but he, he was that day realizing, this is the President of the United States realizing this, God spared me for a reason. What has God spared you from? For what reason? Ronald Reagan became the boldest president we'd had in a century in ideas, in taking our country back, bringing it back to patriotism again, once again, and making our nation whole because he knew he had a challenge from God. Mr. Gorbachev, take down that wall was because Ronald Reagan knew he had a mission from God. One of the finest presidents I would have ever served. You know, and, and I think that uh, we are better off for having him as president. I had more time, I'd go into more of that. But on that day, you know, Tim McCarthy, he recovered nicely. In fact, within a week, he was home. Uh, and within three weeks, he was in Ireland at a ticker tape parade. The city of Chicago flew him over there for a big parade in Ireland. I just got back from a two weeks in Ireland. You were in India and I was in Ireland. We were doing a crusade, a crusade in Ireland. Ireland for Jesus is still going on. This weekend, we're filling a soccer stadium full of youth for Ireland, for Jesus. That day, everybody acted right. You know, we have a chance to get large in our lives, and I'm closing Adam had a chance to rise to greatness, but instead of getting large, he got small. You think I'd get back to the Bible? I will. Adam had a chance. You know, think about it. In the Garden of Eden, <coughs> he could have said, hey, wait, 
Eve, don't eat that. Adam was told by God not to eat of those trees. But he, he, he didn't. He was standing right there. I always thought when I read Genesis, I just overread it. And I thought maybe he was taking out the garbage or something. You know what I mean, guys? And the wife did it. He came back and he went, ooh, you know, and uh, something changed. What happened? Have a bite, you know. And, uh, but that's not what happened. The Bible says their eyes were opened at the same time. God did not tell Eve not to eat. Adam did. God told Adam not to eat. But, you know, what if, what if, what if Adam had not eaten and said, no, don't, but she ate anyway? Do you think Adam would have waited to the cool of the evening for God to show up? Or would he have called out for God saying, hey, God, about this woman you gave me? She did what I told her not to do. But, Lord, I've seen all the animals. I've named them. She's beautiful. I love her. How many ribs do I have? <laughs> Can we not have mercy? Punish me instead. That's not what happened. You know what happened? God came. He said, Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. I'm over here, Lord, behind the bush. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. How do you know you're naked? Did you eat of the tree? The woman made me do it. He pointed the finger at Eve. Guys, can I talk to the guys just for a minute? We blame our families more for our misgivings than really where it should be, right back on us. We need to stand up, get large, take a bullet, be that living sacrifice for our families. It took a different Adam, a second Adam, to get up on a cross whose side was pierced and he died on a cross and the blood ran out and covered us. Our mission in the Secret Service is to cover and evacuate. Jesus covered us with his blood that day on Calvary and he's coming back soon to evacuate his church. And let me say this, he knows what you are going through, what I've been going through. Jesus died, he was buried, three days later he was resurrected, he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for every one of you, every one of you. I coordinated the Olympics in 1984 at the track and field in USC Village and and then two years later, the, uh, had the Special Olympics there. They had a rubberized asphalt track, and these Down syndrome kids were running the race, and 12 of them were running. And as the last 100 yards, Mikey Shoelace came untied, and, and he tripped on it and fell. And the other 11 kids stopped. The finish was right there, but they stopped. They knew they were going to get a medal. They could have just gone over and quit. You know, they didn't quit. They went over. One of them picked Mikey up and brushed him off and gave him a hug. Well, the other ten said, whoa, wait a minute. I want mine. So they all lined up, and they went over, and they brushed him off, and they hugged him. And they could have just walked right there to the bench. 
But instead, they locked arms and walked to the finish line. God wants you to finish the race. He wants you to finish it strong, but you can't finish it strong if you don't have others helping you along. Our mission as a living sacrifice is to reach everyone in our influence span and reach them for Christ and let them know that God has provided a plan for them. He has a plan for you today. I told pastor, I don't, I'm not your normal preacher. I don't do a normal altar call, but this is it. I don't tell you to bow your heads, close your eyes, because I don't ever bow my head and close my eyes. I'm always watching. You know what? It's biblical. Jesus said, watch and pray. And if you think your neighbor's going to see you raise your hand, well, they're looking anyway. They got one eye open. Who's the sinner in here? Okay. So this is the deal. Here's the altar call. It's not about sin. It's about where are you in your life? Where, I mean, sin is part of it. And trust me, all of us, including ministers, have sin creep in our lives. That's why you get up every morning and pray on the full armor of God. You've got to sense your armor up because overnight you may have dreamed something that is wrong. But in your life, it's difficult. In your life, it's difficult to be a champion. It's difficult to get large when everybody else is getting small and hiding. It's difficult to be a leader when everybody else is leaderless. So part of getting it right, and here's the altar call to you today. Is this the next day of the rest of your life? Is this the day you'll say, hey, I'm going to get large for God because he got large for me? I'm going to change things in my life, whatever it is. It could be pride. Well, brother, I've been in this church since the beginning. Yeah, but are you really, really walking with God? Are you a living sacrifice? Well, you don't understand. I serve, I give. Yeah, but are you really a living sacrifice? See, guys, what is a man? He is a reflection of Jesus. that's you today, stand to your feet right now saying, hey, here I am, Lord. Use me, teach me, train me, change me. Make me a living sacrifice in Jesus' precious name. Oh, wow. Father, I know my wife calls that the generic altar call. But you know what? If it reaches 10% of everybody that's standing, I've done my job. I've done what God's called me to do. But what if dream? for a minute with me. Everybody changed something in their life that's standing right now. What difference would it make in this world? Mikey being helped up and to the finish line. Father, I thank you for everyone standing in your presence today. You know them by name. Father, I ask you to anoint them Bless them, cleanse them, help them, teach them, train them to be all that you have called them to be, Father. We ask you, Lord God, right now to heal. Ooh. There's someone here with an ailment that's so bad they haven't even spoken it to their spouse. Father, I ask you to heal them right now.
In Jesus' name. I ask you, Father, to correct that disagreement within the family. Father, it's causing strife in a marriage. Heal it right now. I ask you, Father, to set that man free of pornography. In Jesus' name, now. Father, I bless you. When I say this, Lord, you pay the ultimate price, the living sacrifice. Father, let us share our portion for this earth. Let us be a living sacrifice today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Chuck Brewster. We have been planning Chuck Brewster's visitation to Spring of Life into Miami for years. Uh, for the past three years, we've been um, planning for him to come down and spend time here. And, and my interest for him to come is because there's some things that you teach, that you're taught, and other things that you, caught, you catch. That you, it says the things that are caught cannot be taught. And his being here and being able to share his life and the impartation of the Spirit of God upon him would, would bring an element to our church that, that we need. Uh, men of courage. Men that are selfless in a generation where men tend to be selfish. Uh, honey, I, I hear something out in the backyard. Uh, and you wake up your wife, go check, and I'll wait for you right here. And you send your wife out to danger. Um, but I knew that something would happen uh, from uh, Chuck's visitation to Spring of Life. Uh, I was hoping he's going to be here on Monday night with the men. Uh, invite people to come and to sit under his ministry on Monday night. He'll be here at 6 o'clock for the church, 6 p.m. He's going to do a one-hour workshop on how to take a bullet. Uh, and, and somebody at the beginning of the service says, I don't understand what that whole thing, taking a bullet. Listen, um, I don't need you to take a bullet for me. Um, you need to take one for your wife. And, and a man who is, is all constantly putting his wife at the fray of the missiles that life is taking, he's a coward. And, and we need courageous men. Um, so um, he's going to spend an hour at 6 p.m., um, and then he'll be here tomorrow at the men's meeting at 8. He'll be sharing at the 12 o'clock meeting. Um, so there was something that occurred in the last couple of years in his life. Um, his daughter was diagnosed with a, a real advanced stage of cancer. And, and so I sat there and watched um, his moving near to his daughter and, and serving his daughter in a crisis. The doctor says, you know something? The best we could do with treatment and everything is she might live another six months. Um, today, because they fought the spiritual battle, and so he's not just a man who is about the physical, you know, fighting. He's a, a spiritual fighter. And, and he came against all those things and got large in the life of his daughter together with his wife. And, and today his daughter is cancer-free. And she got the victory. And so even that allowed him to, you know, those two and a half years, three years that we were planning his coming to Miami, um, that was part of the repertoire and, and everything that's in his resume, that he continues to fight the battles of the Lord. Um, years ago, uh, 
Reza Safa was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's a, he's a middle a Muslim, and the Islamic Society invited him to a challenge at the convention center, and a lot of the men in his church did not go. They said, Pastor, you're going to go and debate this Muslim guy, and all the Islamic Society is going to be out there, and your life is going to be threatened. So the men, you know who showed up is the women. The women are the ones that went to the debate, and they surrounded their pastor. When I, when I heard from Paul Adato that his pastor was going to be at that debate, I said, I'll catch an airplane, and I'll, I'll stand next to that man willing to die for Jesus. And we were waiting for a sniper to be up on a roof or a bomb. They had the, the Secret Service out there. They had the dogs. Uh, they had the metal detectors. And, and he sat there and debated. But we need men of courage in this time. Uh, Revelations 21.8 says that those that are at the forefront of the line of men that are going to the lake of fire are not murderers, they're not the pornographic, they're not the pedophile. Um, at the front lines, it says the cowards are going to be at the front lines of those going to the lake of fire. Those are the ones that, that end up. And so this verse, ever since I became a Christian, really concerned me because, you know, obviously, why does a man cower? And that means get small because of fear. And the Bible says we have not been given a spirit of fear, uh, but of, of love and of power and boldness. So the spirit of the Lord allows you to fight the battles of the Lord. And, and David says, who is this uncircumcised fool that he should challenge the armies of the Lord? And he was a small boy, but the spirit of God in him was strong. And, and that's what I pray for the families in this church. Um, we cannot cower inside these four walls. Miami needs a strong people, needs uh, large men. Father, thank you this morning for uh, Chuck Brewster's visitation to Spring of Life Fellowship. We bless him and his family, Lord. We declare that everything that he has taught us and ministered to us would return to his family, Lord, and his lineage a thousandfold, O oh God, that he might, in, in his pouring himself out to our lives and to our church and to the men and to the families of Spring of Life, that our children might be affected by the courage of strong men in the families. And Jesus Christ, who gave his life for the church, we might give our lives for our wives and our children, that we might give our lives for the church and ministry, Lord. Now, as we pour out our lives, you said that he who loses his life will obtain it, but he who tries to save his life will lose it, Lord. We want to be men of courage. We want to be men of honor. We want to be champions. And Father God, we raise the banner of our captain and, and our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, Lord, who taught us how to be selfless and how to be a leader, and how to lay down his life. There's no greater love than this. We pray your blessing upon the congregation. We declare this week to be a week of prosperity and blessing and, and fulfillment of purpose, Lord. And we give you thanks to have visited the house of God today. And you have made uh, the certainty and the clarity of our thoughts, Lord, that we might pursue a selfless life, loving all those around us and loving our God. In Jesus' name we pray and the house of God says amen, amen. <laughs> Greet one another in the love of the Lord. Go by the resource table and, and get some books and take Chuck Brewster with you home. God bless you.